The logistics industry responds to the fires in Maui, more delays at the Panama Canal, and new applications for wireless charging technology. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by PERC, the Propane Education and Research Council. Propane is the safe, reliable energy for material handling. Propane-powered forklifts can improve air quality inside your facilities for a healthier, more productive workforce. See how propane can give your productivity a boost at propane.com slash forklifts. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, just within the past two weeks, our nation has been rocked by two very serious weather-related catastrophes. The wildfire tragedy in Maui, of course, and also Tropical Storm Hillary that brought unprecedented rain and flooding to western states. To talk about how our logistics industry is responding with badly needed relief and supplies, we welcome our good friend Kathy Fulton, the Executive Director of Allen, the American Logistics Aid Network. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be with you as always. Kathy, for those who may not be familiar with the work of Allen, the American Logistics Aid Network, can you briefly describe what you do and how the industry actually even got together to create this great organization? When you say industry got together to create the organization, that's exactly what happened. Um, Way back in 2005, 18 years ago now, so I guess we're old enough to vote, um, Hurricane Katrina really uh, devastated the Gulf Coast of the United States. And um, from that, we saw a lot of logistics challenges emerge. And so a number of uh, industry associations and supply chain professionals were all together at a conference that fall and they said, this is our problem to solve. We're the, we're the experts here, we're the professionals here. We should be doing something about helping ease logistics challenges during disaster. And so that's kind of really how we're, we were formed. Um, our work includes everything from coordinating logistic services on behalf of the nonprofits, helping them access donated or discounted um, resources, everything from warehousing to transportation to material handling equipment or expertise. And then we also work a bit in supply chain resilience conversations. So helping businesses understand what government uh, actions are being taken during a disaster. And then on the flip side of that, helping government understand what private sector supply chains are doing during a disaster, kind of what's the health check on private sector supply chains during a disaster. So all of that kind of works together so that we're touching business, government, and nonprofit, uh, all with the goal of ensuring that uh, disaster survivors get the nourishment, hydration, medical care, um, sheltering, everything that they need to uh, to continue after they've just had a really bad day. And it's a great organization, and we encourage all of our listeners who are in logistics to support the good work of Alan. You've obviously been involved the last couple of weeks uh, with the, the tragic outcome of the wildfires that, that ravaged Maui. Uh, what can you tell us about what's going on right now? And that the situation just seems to get worse and worse with news every day of, of uh, just how devastating that fire was. Yeah, um, you know, this is a really um, sad and protracted disaster because 
um, they haven't even found all of the human remains. As we're talking at this point, you know, two weeks after after the fires um, devastated the the city of Lahaina, and so that means that until the that area that has been ravaged can be cleared, um, and they can recover um, the human remains, um, a lot of the other recovery activities can't start. Um, yes, people are being uh, fed and sheltered um, through kind of the the replacement supply chains or the the supply chains that get you know the disaster supply chains being they be, you know whether they're points of distribution or shelter locations uh, you know, those types of activities but the real work of helping people rebuild um, you know recover what they've lost um, that's going to take months and years and decades, unfortunately, for, for that particular community. Um, a lot of the work that, that we're focused on right now in Maui um, has to do with um, helping support those immediate needs. Um, and the, the communities, the islands have been very generous, so people have made lots of in-kind product donations. So if you're thinking about loading up a container or a truck, and sending supplies uh, to Hawaii, I ask that you please don't. Um, they have plenty of resources already on the islands. And that's gonna be the case for the immediate uh, you know, and short-term future. Once we get to rebuilding structures and uh, helping people get into more permanent housing, that's when those items for longer-term needs will, will become necessary, donations of those things. Um, but the work that we're doing right now ha has to do with supporting telecommunications. Um, so we've supported one of our partners, uh, Information Technology Disaster Resource Center, ITDRC. Um, we helped move uh, through a partnership with UPS, helped move uh, equipment that's powering all of the, um, the shelter locations, all of the points of distribution, uh, and some of the broader communications uh, across the island really yeah, I, I don't know if, if your listeners are aware of this, but there are still um, over a thousand people um, who are listed as missing. They, they haven't been found yet. Um, and so it, that communications equipment is critical to helping reconnect um, people who are, who are listed as missing with their, their families. The other thing that we're, we're doing right now is really just helping to be an information hub for, uh, for our nonprofit partners. Um, we're leading the logistics work group for the, the voluntary organizations active in disaster um, for the Hawaii BOAD. And then we're, we're part of the, um, the task force, the planning task force for the donations group that's being jointly led by uh, the state of Hawaii and FEMA. So really just bringing in information about what uh, what logistics capabilities exist, and that's everything from the ocean freight to the air cargo to, to ground logistics opportunities, um, as well as what we're seeing uh, in terms of needed support. So just trying to be that information hub, making sure that all everyone who's part of the response has all of the logistics information they need to make, make good decisions. What are your needs right now then from the supply chain community? Is it is it cash donations? Is it just making services available? What are you looking for there? Yeah, so it, it's definitely both. Um, as you can imagine, uh, doing this type of coordination work and this type of 
information management work is labor intensive, um, but it has a big impact, right? So we like to say a little bit of logistics results in a lot of good. So there are immediate needs for things like air cargo um, for those high need, high demand items, um, ground transportation here on, on the mainland of the United States to support getting those things to the airport or to the ports, um, ocean carriage, right? Anything that can be done uh, and donated from a logistics perspective will reduce the amount that nonprofits have to spend, um, which increases what they can do to support the disaster survivors. Uh, cash donations are always best uh, rather than, you know, we don't want to do product donations. We know that that those things are already, uh, the, the islands are already overwhelmed. So cash donations allow nonprofit organizations to, um, to purchase what they need, when they need it, where they need it, in the quantities they needed, all of those things that as supply chain professionals, we you know we want to make sure we get right, the right time, right place, right quantity, right location, right quality, all of those things. Uh, and, and as well, you know, Allen ourselves is a nonprofit organization. So it's labor intensive to to do the work that that we're doing. Um, we would love if your listeners would also consider making financial contributions, not just to the nonprofits, you know, who are on the ground doing the work, but our organization who is really sitting in the background trying to help um, coordinate the logistics to make sure that, that those organizations have, have things to work with. It, yeah, and just one more thing, it's gonna, you know, this is gonna be a, a long recovery process. So we may not have a specific request that people can help with today, but we want people to tell us what their capabilities are because a month from now, two months from now, uh, something may pop up and if we know who to call, if someone has already offered their service, uh, we'll reach out to them and, and get that, you know, get that match made. Right. And you have a portal, I believe, on your website where people can offer what their services are and then you try to match them up with what the needs are. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. On our website, alanaid.org, A-L-A-N-A-I-D.org. Um, we just have a form that says, you know, offer in-kind services, um, and you can tell us what your capabilities are. Um, you know, do you have trucking that you can donate or warehousing or material handling equipment? Whatever your capabilities are, let us know. Um, it is not a commitment to anything. We're always going to contact you and, uh, and say, you know, hey, you, you said you might be able to do this. Here's a specific opportunity um, because it, Alan is all about opportunity, not an obligation. We're here because the industry thought that there needed to be a point person, you know, a point organization helping um, both nonprofits do their logistics better and helping businesses interface with those nonprofits um, sure. more effectively. So uh, that's that's our role. Does the distance and remoteness of the Hawaiian Islands also make this a little more difficult to be able to get the supplies that are going to be needed to rebuild that area of Maui? Does distance matter? Absolutely. Um, these are big, bulky items, right? When you're talking about rebuilding, you're talking about plywood, you're talking about lumber, you're talking about shingles, all of those things. And those are not, you know, not lightweight items. They're not small items. 
Um, and so uh, that's going to take up a lot of cargo space. It's going to, you know, and most of them are manufactured in Asia, come to the U.S. West Coast, and then uh, get transloaded and, and go back to towards Hawaii. So thinking about how can those things flow in at the right time so they're not sitting around, either sitting around waiting um, or um, getting there uh, too late. Um, yeah. So yeah, the distance distance is, uh, is a problem for both immediate response, but also the long-term rebuilding. Now on the mainland, of course, we've had tropical storm Hillary pass through many of our Western mm -hmm. states uh, earlier this week. It's probably a little too early to know what the needs are yet with a lot of flooding and, and water damage, that sort of thing. But uh, what do you anticipate there and your role with Alan? Yeah, the, the flooding, um, you know, in the desert, right, is, is always a surprise to people. Um, but what we expect is going to, to happen is that as those homes and buildings get um, mucked out so they get the the debris flow out and they get the the waters out um they'll have to be all of the drywall and, and things pulled down so for for homeowners who need assistance with that um, we have a number of partners who do that type of work and so we'll help them with um, the the personal protective equipment that they need to safely do that work the the rakes and shovels and, and whatnot we can help move and transport those things um, we don't have any specific requests for that as of yet, um, but again, we expect that it's going to be coming. So anyone who wants to, again, make a pre-offer um, of support, is is we would very much appreciate that. You touched on this just a bit earlier in our conversation about how there are a lot of people who want to give but don't know how or give the wrong way, and they actually strain supply chains in the way that some donations are made. Can you highlight that a little bit more? Yeah. So um, we actually did a, a little mini research study earlier this year, not scientifically significant, I'll say, but um, just to understand ways in which businesses are giving uh, to support disaster response. And one of the, the interesting things we found is that more than 50% of the people we surveyed had done some type of logistics um, donation, right? They, they donated trucking or they donated warehousing. But even more than that, um, I think it was maybe around 70% or so, um, had donated products, which is terrific if it's the right products at the right time. Um, it, when organizations and more often when individuals um, donate products uh, without understanding what the clear need is. So in supply chain terms, if they don't understand exactly what the demand signal is from uh, from the disaster area, um, then those things get in the way. There's not a lot of warehouse space in Maui, right? So that, that's one of the things that, that is a challenge right now for the Hawaii response, but it happens over and over again, regardless of, of where the disaster is. Well-meaning people, um, uh, you know, fill up, they, they host collection drives, they announce it to their, their neighborhood, um, they pack all these pallets, they take a lot of pictures, um, and then they realize, oh, we have to get this to the people who need it. So they're booking trucks or they're, you know, loading up planes in the case of Hawaii, um, and that's taking up space away from pre-existing supply chains, right? Um, so 
we always urge people, you know, connect before you collect. Make sure if you're con collecting something, it's because there is a verified organization who is operating in the disaster area who has specifically said they need these items and they're not available anywhere else. Um, so we don't want to we don't want to put additional strain on um, on supply chains. We've been through enough with our supply chains over the past three years with with COVID. Um, let's uh, let's ease the burden on, on our logistics and supply chain professionals just a little bit by being smart about how we give. Good advice. And again, we want to mention the website where you can get involved with Alan, and that's alanaid.org. Kathy, thank you so much for being with us again. Always, uh, you guys could do great work, and we're big supporters, big fans of Alan and the work that you do. Thanks, Dave. We, we love uh, being partnered with you all. So thanks so much for having me. Our guest today has been Kathy Fulton, the Executive Director of Allen, the American Logistics Aid Network. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Ben, some of the same drought conditions that contributed to the tragic fires in Maui are also causing problems for the movement of goods through the Panama Canal. I know this week they've put on some more restrictions. What's the latest there? That's exactly right. Um, as, as we've been talking about on the show, we've seen a lot of crazy weather in the last couple of weeks. Um, but of course, the Maui wildfire is still top of mind for everybody. Uh, but also there have been tropical storms hitting uh, Mexico and California for the first time in some 80 years or something. Uh, at the same time, we're talking about Panama because uh, there's another example of some extreme weather in Central America. But this one's playing out kind of in slow motion compared to those tropical storms and wildfires, of course. So what the deal is, is long-term drought in Panama. And it's affecting global supply chains now because it's slowing down the flow of maritime freight through that crucial canal. So uh, I needed to stop for a second and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, why a lack of rain, which is freshwater, affects a canal that connects to oceans, which are salt water. It's kind of obvious, but in, in talking with folks this week, um, we, we realized that we needed a quick refresher. Um, some of us learned about this in elementary school, but I had to look it up. Uh, basically, the canal is not that short. The Panama Canal is something like 50 miles long. Uh, almost all of that distance runs through a freshwater body called Gatton Lake. And that lake is at higher elevation than the oceans on each side, obviously, since the lake is on a continent, which is above sea level. So the canal needs to use locks to raise and lower container ships to that higher lake. Those locks use fresh water and without enough rain to fill up a series of these secondary feeder lakes in the country, uh, they can no longer do that as much. Well, that makes sense, Ben, but do we know exactly what the impact is on logistics with that lack of rain? Traffic isn't stopped entirely, right? Uh, it, it, it's, it's not, right? And we, and, and we all, our minds jump back to the Suez Canal when, when it was blocked by that ever given ship a couple years ago. Um, the Panama Canal Authority is still sending ships through the Panama Canal. Um, they actually have a series of steps that they take to deal with drought. Uh, you know, it, it happens occasionally uh, to a degree over history. And at each step, they reduce the number of boat trips per day uh, and sometimes reduce the draft of each ship, which of course is how low it sinks in the water, which is a function of how many heavy containers it's carrying. So the last change was actually um, on, on August 8th, they went to what they call condition three of those severity regulations. 
Um, and then um, more recently, they announced that they're planning to keep uh, at that condition three level at least until September two. So a couple more weeks now. Uh, the supply chain visibility provider, Project 44, uh, has been tracking this and they say that some ships are experiencing delays right now of up to three weeks before they can pass through the canal uh, because of those conditions. And that could cause knock-on effects. Um, we might see a rise in container lead times till they're delivered. Uh, there might be shortages or rising costs for consumer goods. Uh, might even see some trade patterns shifting if this continues long enough so that uh, you know importers would change where they're sending those ships. Uh, another measure was came from the container tracking firm Container Exchange, um, and they say that uh, they've seen uh, what they call a substantial backlog with between uh, the counts uh, vary, they change, of course, but 150 to maybe 200 vessels uh, are currently waiting their turn to transit through, uh, counting both sides. Uh, really, what, one of the toughest things here is the timing of this problem is really tough because uh, the calendar shows us that you know, we're at the end of August, which means from a retail and inventory and logistics uh, point of view, the winter holiday peak shopping season is right around the corner. So retailers are increasingly in danger of maybe getting delays on that. And, uh, you know, that could eventually lead to missed sales opportunities if they can't get their holiday inventory levels up in time. Right. And I guess the only bright side of this problem is that a lot of retailers still have some inventory left over from the pandemic times. And we're not planning to bring in quite as much new inventory this holiday season as normal. If that had been the case that it was a normal year, we'd really be in trouble with those canal bottlenecks, I imagine. Right, Ben? Uh, it, it's a great point, Bowie. The, uh, the warehouses are still, uh, you know, stocked full to the rafters. Uh, there's not a lot of normal going on here. Uh, but yeah, great point. We'll keep tracking that as well. Yeah, but probably some disruption on the way. Thanks, Ben. Glad to. And Victoria, you wrote recently on the rise of wireless charging for autonomous mobile robotic systems and automatic guided vehicles. Can you share what's spurring on the adoption of this new technology? Absolutely, Dave. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So as you say, demand for uh, wireless charging is gaining steam in warehousing and logistics. And again, this is largely because of the growing use of those autonomous vehicles and robots you mentioned. Um, and a resulting demand to really want to maximize the use of that equipment and minimize wear and tear on it. I looked into this for a feature story that appears in the current issue of DC Velocity, really to get a handle on the evolution of this issue of wireless charging for the warehouse. Uh, there were a handful of companies showcasing this technology at the Promat Industry Conference back in March, and I really wanted to find out how far along in development the technology is for the industry. You know, is it being widely used or just in testing phases? That kind of thing. First, though, let me step back and define exactly uh, what I'm talking about here. So wireless charging is a way to charge batteries in electric vehicles or equipment without plugging them directly into a power socket. The equipment is placed on or near a charging pad, which is plugged into the main electrical system, um, so that an electrical charge can pass safely between the two. Both devices contain induction coils that create an electromagnetic field when they get near each other, and that allows electricity to pass from the pad to the equipment. This method um, eliminates the need for mechanical charging contacts, as well as um, rooms or spaces in a facility that are dedicated to charging, and it promotes opportunity charging, which allows equipment to run continuously. All of this cuts back on maintenance, saves time, and ultimately speeds up warehouse operations, proponents of wireless charging say. So it's, it's something that is of great interest. 
Victoria, so where are we in the evolution of wireless charging within the warehouse? Right. So that's really what I was interested in, in getting at. So companies are making headway in applying it to autonomous mobile robots or AMRs and autonomous guided vehicles, AGVs, as, as you pointed out. Um, and again, that type of equipment is more and more prevalent in warehouses today. One wireless charging company I spoke to for my story said they've sold about 8,000 of their wireless charging systems and that those are either in use or in testing phases at warehouses and distribution centers in Europe and here in the United States. The main benefits are that there are no contacts, plugs, or you know, sliding connections for the charger. Uh, the AMRs and AGVs just automatically start to charge when they approach the charging point, uh, which they can do from any direction with this particular system. The big benefit, again, is the lack of mechanical contacts, and that makes the system practically maintenance-free. So, you know, there's no oxidized plugs or broken cables to worry about. Where the technology is less far along, as far as use anyway, is with traditional manual forklifts, you know, those drove, driven by a human being. Um, and that's because it's harder to do. To successfully charge in this way, you've got to have the charging pads strategically placed throughout the facility, and you also need precise vehicle alignment with the charger. Those challenges are easily solved with automated systems because you can program stops into the vehicle's control system, but with a human operator, as you can imagine, much more is left to chance. But people are working on it. I spoke to a company that is focused on solving those challenges and is developing wireless charging for traditional manual forklifts. Uh, this particular company expects to start piloting the technology at customer sites by the end of the year. Um, so again, this isn't as far along in terms of use, but it seems to be on the way. When all of this technology will become mainstream is still a big question, but there's a lot happening in its development right now. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, uh, listeners can learn more by checking out our story in the current issue. That's a really interesting topic, and we do want to let people know that you can also check out our website at dcvelocity.com to see this story. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We'd like to thank Kathy Fulton of Allen, the American Logistics Aid Network, for being our guest today. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. Speaking of subscribing, check out our sister podcast series, Supply Chain in the Fastlane, co-produced by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Supply Chain Quarterly. The current series is on transportation tech. Check out Supply Chain in the Fast Lane wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by PERC, the Propane Education and Research Council. Propane is the safe, reliable energy for material handling. Propane-powered forklifts can improve air quality inside your facilities for a healthier, more productive workforce. See how propane can give your productivity a boost at propane.com forklifts. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters. Be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.